Welcome to Reading Around Macroeconomics. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and today's reading comes to us from Jeffrey P. Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. On the 1st of October 2021, Jeff posted at the Real Clear Markets blog an essay, and it was called Easing Monetary Policy is Missing a Key Component, Presumably Money. Jeff is writing about this because the US dollar is rising in value and has been for some time and more recently it was a little bit sharper. This jogged his memory about the last time the officials in charge were comfortable about the outlook, optimistic, and then all of a sudden the dollar started rising again. It brings us back to 2011 and some guffaws and hijinks from the FOMC meeting minutes. Financial repression, he admitted, yes, this was neither a mistake nor an unlucky coincidence. It had always been an intentional provocation, the occurrence of ridiculously low interest rates and the negative effects these have on savers. The difference was that Mr. Kocher Lakota would never speak so explicitly in public. Like corruption, cowardice comes in many forms. The president of the Fed's Minneapolis branch, Narayana Kocher Lakota's tenure at the FOMC was as the typical economist. In times of trouble, the master neo-Keynesian playbook tells policymakers they had better disadvantage grandparents, discourage saving in any way possible. The fact this is harmful to their financial comfort really is the whole point. Mr. Kocher Lakota, the comment I'm tempted to make, but which I have not made yet in public, is that this is actually a feature, not a bug. Laughter. We're trying to get them to consume, as opposed to save. To spend money on their grandkids, to lend to promising young entrepreneurs down the street, as opposed to holding money. And so this actually would be a sign of the program working. The sign of the program working, Coacher Lakota had already explained, was the constant complaints and worse hurled at him by the righteously angered who are not always gray-haired retirees. That promising young entrepreneur down the street didn't exist by 2011's economy, yet the Keynesians always put them in the future. And this was September 2011, not a particularly happy time to be associated with the Federal Reserve in any way, shape, or form. Not that you would know it from all the easy jokes and arrogance-laden insults. By then, this was more than enough time. Low rates are never supposed to be permanent. Yet September was closing in on three years since the Fed's zero interest rate policy had been announced. Why was it still there with no end in sight? At that very moment, on the contrary, the debate around the conference room table centered on what policymakers had to do in order to regain confidence in a situation going very wrong. QE2, if it works so well, why would you ever have to do it more than once? QE2 had just barely finished up and these economists were afraid that if they went right into QE3, not even three months afterward, it would damage the public's view of the entire technique. Not that it wasn't enough money, but that it might leave people wondering what was, the monetar what was monetary at all, which would have been the correct interpretation. Yes, 
though they hated savers during recessions and their recoveries which aren't recoveries, more important was to leave intact the idea that anything financial, everything financial, including all interest rates, get decided by these glibly bureaucratic gatherings. When you don't do money, your only other option is to make the world think you do. Effective rate control was a huge problem in many ways and had really been not all that long before 2011. One of the primary features of the first global financial crisis was the lack of control over interest rates, even in the short-term end of curves. I've written about IOER, Interest on Excess Reserves, sordid saga many, many times, and still it bears repeating many, many more. These people really thought that paying interest on reserves would have put a floor under federal funds, the direct object of all monetary policy and its actual design, communication, when it achieved nothing of the sort. But how did they decide that what IOER should pay? At first, unlike now, there were two rates for interest on reserves, depending on what type of reserves, excess or required reserves. The latter never amounted nor amounts to much, so that one really doesn't matter. Today there is only IORB, or interest on reserve balances, encompassing both kinds. The law which would authorize these payments on whichever reserves was left ambiguous, probably on purpose. While it wouldn't matter in 2008, failures all around, by 2011, it probably should have been treated as a much bigger deal. The statute said the Federal Reserve could not pay higher interest than competing money market rates. But IOER was set at 25 basis points, while money market rates all over the dollar spectrum continuously paid far less, closer to zero for most. It had become such a sticky situation that after a serious and unexpected crisis in the middle of 2011, even two-year Treasury yields were consistently below IOER. Did the Fed violate the law for several years? <laughs> Laws like savings are for suckers. Mr. Carpenter, the statutory requirement is that the rate paid on reserves can't exceed the general level of short-term interest rates. Mr. Fisher, short-term interest rates are defined as... Mr. Carpenter, not defined? Not only that general level of short-term interest rates is a fairly open term when you consider that in something like federal funds or repo, there really isn't a single fed funds or repo rate. There are, as... Mr. Carpenter further pointed out, trading in those markets going off at all kinds of rates in any given day. Like everything else at the Fed, policy was just plain made up on the fly. The level of IOER basically picked out of the hat. Control? Hardly. And yet, in trying to decide which avenue toward more easing to pursue, Further reducing IOER was seriously discussed anyway. Mr. Carpenter, lowering the IOER rate should, all else being equal, provide banks with an additional incentive to lend because any individual bank could fund 
additional lending by running down its reserves and leaving the overall size of its balance sheet unchanged. This is one explanation put forward why ever since ZERP, zero interest rate policy, and the first QE, banks hadn't lent. They were only too happy, many experts claimed, sitting in reserves getting paid little better than nothing to do nothing. And it sounds reasonable if you don't think too hard on it. But was such pittance of 25 basis points really sufficient to not lend to some young entrepreneur with a grand idea? Financial repression wasn't just meant to ding grandma and grandpa. It is also meant to harm banking institutions too, so as to spur them into activity, taking things a step further into NERP if necessary. And why wouldn't it? In theory, all QE does is swap one asset for another. A U.S. Treasury or mortgage-backed security gets sold by a bank to the Federal Reserve in exchange for now a reserve asset. This was never supposed to be the end of QE's effect. And notice, no money is printed. The bank was then supposed to replace the lost security despite reserve assets with some riskier balance sheet addition, preferably a nice fat loan to aspiring tycoons, old as well as young. Portfolio effects. This, of course, misses the true monetary point which points in the direction of bank balance sheets, and that is balance sheet capacities are governed by rules and constraints which have nothing whatsoever to do with bank reserves, excessive or not nor the rate paid on them. A loan isn't just a riskier proposition. It costs dearly in terms of balance sheet space when such space is already perceived too dear. Going from 25 to 15 or maybe 10 on IOER in that situation change absolutely nothing, as we find out in 2018. But if the public believes this means something then policymakers believe it would accomplish their goal, even if it pissed off savers who are ironically taught to believe the Federal Reserve is in charge of everything. There were much bigger problems. Mr. Sack, money market funds and other investors have continued to pull back from providing unsecured dollar funding to many institutions. At this point, with the exception of a short list of top-tier banks, all unsecured funding has collapsed to maturities of one week or less. Banks that instead rely on obtaining dollar funding by borrowing in euros and using FX swaps market to convert dollars have seen their implied funding costs move up sharply. All this despite QE2 having brought the systemic level of bank reserves up to $1.6 a systemic balance that, at the time, the Fed's Major critics claimed was so much money printed it would doom the dollar and ignite our inflationary nightmare. On the contrary, what was then happening, only more of the same deflationary money pressures, way too similar, if to a lesser degree, to what had just occurred, occurred the few years before. These included, as Brian Sack acknowledged, it has been become more difficult to borrow against less liquid collateral, with investors requiring over-collateralization and higher rates for some transactions. When there isn't enough liquid collateral, 
The only choice, not bank reserves, is to overpay for what remains workable. U.S. Treasuries, bills first, but not just bills, also short-term notes, like the two-year. Remember also what was going on over at the Treasury Department during this 2011 dollar funding crisis. As I recalled over this past summer for the same reasons, 10 years ago, the same debt ceiling problems had also led to a sharp curtailing of bill issuance. This would cause all manner of problems, not just for U.S. dollar repo, but, believe it or not, banks instead rely on obtaining dollar funding by borrowing in euros and using FX swap markets. As Mr. Sack said, this situation described by Mr. Sack is essentially a synthetic repo wildly popular with dealers, cash lenders, because it is the most efficient form of cross-jurisdictional dollar funding in terms of sparing precious balance sheet capacity. I wrote about it in detail in November 2019, in the wake of that year's likewise misunderstood repo mess. <clears throat> a repo is a loan, therefore it goes on the balance sheet at par value. FX, as a derivative, gets booked instead by its market value, which, in almost every form of swap or forward, starts out at zero. It requires no balance sheet space initially, and over time, the only way that changes is if the contract value of the swap materially shifts. Should the, sh should the system start messing up again, the contract value of the swap won't be so friendly to dealer mathematicals, the real shadow money. Even the efficiency attributes behind this synthetic repo can reverse, causing dealers to pause and stay out of the market. Negative elasticity just when they are needed most. The value of good collateral, therefore, takes an enlarged premium. The other side of this form of money price is, confusingly, a low yield. Deflation in them, not stimulus. One particularly helpful test for this situation, once you are freed from all the mainstream jokes, is the almighty king dollar. And yet here too, we are taught all sorts of wrong ideas about how and why the dollar moves and the way it does, leading the vast majority of the time for the dollar to move in the way it isn't supposed to. At 2011's first FOMC meeting in January, the same Brian Sack had noted the dollar's ongoing weakness, to which he added, despite the better sentiment about U.S. growth prospects, the dollar depreciated against most currencies. This is one version of the strong dollar which purports U.S. economic strength as the reason it goes up in exchange value. To explain Sachs, despite Chairman Bernanke and St. Louis Fed President James Bullard both said, no, the falling dollar, that's money printing, baby. The economy was improving, the pair claimed, and it was because of QE and bank reserves. Therefore, easy money behind the downward slide in the currency. Mr. Bullard, nationally, prospects for the economy seem to have improved rather markedly relative to last summer. I attribute part of the improvement to this committee's asset purchase program. I think that this program did four things. It put downward pressure on short-term real yields. It put upward pressure on 
expected inflation as measured by market-based tips, it contributed to a rally in equity markets, and it contributed to downward pressure on the trade-weighted value of the dollar. In my view, these are classic signs of monetary policy easing. Such a happy tone and falling dollar of QE monetary easing in January 2011 had by September fallen into the beleaguered situation across the entire global economy with the dollar rising. The light tone persisted at the FOMC, of course, because there is no accountability for these gross monetary mistakes even after they pile up year after year. In other words, low yields and a rising dollar equal an inordinately tight global dollar, euro dollar in reality. It has a lot to do with collateral in repo and swaps alike, all tracing back to dealer capacities being constrained in some serious fashion. The level and rate for excess reserves, each immaterial. Savers get punished on both sides. Not only does real monetary failure keep rates too low year after year, decade after decade. Those low rates likewise declarative, declaratively signal an unhealthy monetary and financial environment which can only further destroy deflationary potential, economic vigor, and vitality. Grandma and Grandpa were only meant to suffer for a short while for the greater good of the economic recovery if ever low rates were stimulus like the textbook says. Since they aren't, well, those at the Fed can and certainly will get to laugh about it and us. Keep all this in mind as September and Q3 2021 draw to a close while Jay Powell's Fed portrays one view of classic signs of monetary policy easing that all of a sudden are missing at least the one key component. Calling it a 2020-2021 success story, Taper quite unlike January 2011 and way too much like that September, the dollar's already been rising for months. And that wraps up another episode of Reading Around Macroeconomics. You can find Jeff's work at the Real Clear Markets site. Just search for Jeffrey P. Snyder. You can also find his writings at Alhambra Investments at the blog post. He's on Twitter at JeffSnyder underscore AIP. And I thought it would be very incumbent upon me. I don't know if he can be very incumbent, but it can, I want to make sure, ladies and gentlemen, that you know that these celebrity voices that you heard on this podcast were impersonated. They were not actually members of the FOMC. I'll talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>